0: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to episode 5 of Intelligence Square Business.
1: This week we have David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph
0: in a Specialized World. It's a fascinating conversation in which David spoke to the economist and broadcaster Linda Yu about how from artists and writers like William Shakespeare to leading sports people like Roger Federer and Serena Williams, generalists tend to be more successful and have more fulfilling careers than experts. It's a fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for David's book in the podcast description. A quick reminder, if you are enjoying Intelligence Square Business, please share and tell all your friends about this new podcast strand. But now, let's go to the episode. We shouldn't reward people for forging ahead if they learn things that say they should pivot. Everyone knows Serena Williams played uh, a lot as, as a girl. I got to talk to her last year, I've been a sports reporter. I didn't even know she told me I did taekwondo, ballet, gymnastics. This isn't to say that we don't need specialists, no, of course not, but I do think it's, there's all this like cultural mythology that that sort of makes people feel bad about having broad interests.
1: Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by David Epstein to discuss his new book, Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David is a New York Times best-selling author who also wrote The Sports Dream. He has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Welcome, David. It's lovely to have you here to speak with you about this terrific book. I'm gonna just kick off and ask you, um, what led you to write this book? And after reading it, I felt it had personal resonance for you, didn't it?
0: It definitely did. I mean, I think even when I don't realize it at the time in retrospect, I think a lot of my writing projects come out of things I'm curious about that that I see in my own life. And particularly though, The the genesis of range came out of my first book, The Sports Gene, where I sort of criticized some of the science, the the rigor of the science underlying the so-called 10,000 hours rule or the deliberate practice framework, as scientists call it. And that brought me into a debate with Malcolm Gladwell um, at something called the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. And we were brought there to debate about the best way to develop athletes and uh, I'd never met him before um, and he's obviously pretty clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. So I went through his writing to, to try to guess what he would argue and I saw his writing about how you know, important it was to specialize early and narrowly. And so when we got to that debate, I, you know, I, I made a big point of the data showing that in fact, athletes who go on to become elite usually don't do that. They have this sort of so-called sampling period where they do sort of variety of physical activities. They gain these broad general skills learn about their interests and abilities and delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And when we were coming off the stage, he said, you know, that, that data really didn't comport with, with my thinking. Like, what you want to go on a run tomorrow when we're both back home in New York and we'll talk about it more. And so we became running buddies and we would talk about this stuff on our own time um, and you know, ca- called it the Roger versus Tiger problem, which turned out to be the introduction of the book, came directly out of our discussions. And so just as we were talking about it, I started to think about it, whether what we were seeing in sports could really be just an analogy for other domains of work in the world. And so I started getting interested in all these these other domains and seeing which of those sort of fit that surprising pattern in sports and and which didn't. And that that was the genesis of the project.
1: And and for you personally, you sampled, didn't you? You didn't specialize early.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, in sports and in life, right? I did like American football, basketball, baseball, the cross-country track and sports. I ran track in college, but I was when I was like 16, I was I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was gonna be a test pilot, I was gonna to go to the United States Air Force Academy, I was then gonna be an astronaut. I didn't do any of that stuff. Now I have no idea, like I've gotten almost linearly less knowing what I'm doing as I've gotten older and in in university, I um, was training to be a scientist. So I have a master's degree in environmental sciences. Um, But I decided that, you know, that wasn't kind of a a fit for me. It wasn't good, you know, some economists call it match quality, the degree of fit between my interests and abilities and, and the work I was doing. And I sort of decided, because of some, some kind of personal events to try to merge my interests in sports and science. And, And at the time right about sudden cardiac death in athletes because i'd had a training partner who had died at the end of a race so i took my sort of scientific background where i was like very normal as i was like living up in the arctic you know doing research in the arctic tundra and i was very normal i would say around other scientists but then you take those skills move them over to like a sports magazine and suddenly you know i realized how unique that was even though it was ordinary in one area and so, actually, that attuned me to something that I just continued to do throughout my career, which is take skills that were sort of ordinary in one milieu and 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 transport them to somewhere where suddenly they were seen as like you know innovative and, and creative. And so, um, I did realize that that was something that that started helping me. And and so, I've zigzagged like crazy, and I'm still doing that. I still like truly have no idea what I'm going to be when I grow up.
1: <laughs> That's actually a very good intro to your book, because it's all about um, this, you know, thinking differently, I think about um, how you uh, undertake your career. Um, and I love this quote that you start with, um, you give the full quote, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. So tell us about this quote, and the premise of your book a bit more. Yeah, well that
0: that quote. So usually we only hear Jack of all trades, master of none. And I thought it's kind of culturally telling that we lop off the end of the quote, which is oftentimes better than master of one. This isn't to say that we don't need specialists, and of course not, mm-hmm. but I do think it's there's all this like cultural mythology that that sort of makes people feel bad about having broad interests. And in fact, the first use of Jack of all trades as an insult. Um, the first written use at least. So the first one we have record of was Johannes Factotum in in New Latin. And it was written by um, a playwright who was insulting another young playwright who didn't have formal higher education, uh, who was really a poet who was trying to write plays and trying to act and help run a theater company, copy scripts. And so he said this, you know, this loser is trying to do it all. And and that loser was William Shakespeare. So he was the he was the butt of the first jack of all trades insult. Um, But I think that's sort of common, because if you look through sort of especially, you know, science and technology, innovation, history, but also literature and the arts, these these people who are coming with an unusual background that often change a field are at first denigrated by the people who are sort of um, you know the, the sort of status quo standard bearers in, in the field. And so that, that quote kind of came to be representative uh, to me of that, but, but we forget the past half of it, just like we only focus on stories of precocity, right? So w- in the book, when I open up with Roger Federer and Tiger Woods, where Roger Federer did all these sports as a kid and delayed specializing and Tiger obviously specialized early, those are both examples of success. I didn't dispute that at all, obviously. But everyone knows the Tiger Woods story. And even though Federer is just as famous as an adult, nobody knows his story, even though it's the norm, according to the science, not the exception, right? Everyone knows Serena Williams played uh, a lot as, as a girl. I got to talk to her last year. I'd been a sports reporter. I didn't even know. She told me I did taekwondo, ballet, gymnastics, track and field, uh, learned how to throw a football for my overhand serve. I worked at a sports magazine. I'd never even heard that. Or, you know, we think of the Mark Zuckerberg as like this, the young prodigy, right? He said young people are just smarter when he was 22. He doesn't say that anymore. But last year, MIT and the U.S. Census Bureau released research showing that the average age, in the U.S. at least, of a founder of a fast-growing tech startup on the day of founding is 45.4. But it's just like all these other stories where we focus on these exceptions because they're dramatic and they're these tidy narratives and we ignore what the research says is actually Uh, the norm, even though there's a huge amount of variability, I think it's important to know what's typical when we're all focused on these exceptions.
1: I found that um, aspect of you, Brooke, absolutely fascinating, because you're right, we think of the norm as actually um, the Tiger Woods, the kind of young, you know, startup, and I've certainly seen equivalent studies in other countries where you know your um, entrepreneurs, on average, of fast-growing startups, are actually in their forties. People who've had experience, and therefore they've decided to strike out on their own. And, um, and yet, that's not our perception um, at all. So I found all of this to be um, a good reason, by the way, David, to write a book. So <laughs> let's talk more about it and um, and change perceptions. Um, so I want to ask you about the cult of the head start. And the story of the Proger sisters and chess, of course, coincidentally, the Queen's Gambit on Netflix um, is garnering a huge amount of attention right now.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and it's a really good show. I watched it. You know, I think deservedly so. I think like the cinematography is beautiful, the acting is wonderful. But it's interesting because I just, I just the other day did a Q and A where I was the the question asker with a guy named John Urschel who used to play in the NFL um again you know american football and at the same time started his math phd at mit at the same time while he was in the nfl and now now he's he's a mathematician finishing his he reti- decided to retire from the NFL after he had a you know a, a pretty severe concussion um and he's finishing his phd in math at mit and he's also he, he's become a good chess player and his best friend is one of the best chess players in the united states and he was talking about Queen's Gambit and saying how he gets bothered sort of by the portrayal of genius in a lot of media where it's like just this like bolt of lightning out of the blue, right? It's like someone who just has this incredible talent right away because that's, that's often not exactly how it works, right? It's probably not quite as rare as those things make it look, but it's like usually a slower process. There are there are cases that are these sort of bolts out of the blue, but but usually it's more someone gets interested in something, builds a little skill. Maybe they learn a little faster than they thought. And they, it, it's usually much more fits and starts and all sorts of luck and coincidences. And there is some of that luck in, in, in Queen's Gambit for sure. Um, but I think it, it is just like one more pebble on this huge pile that suggests either you got it early or you don't got it at all. And, and the fact is development is very nonlinear. And that's usually not the way these things look. And chess, by the way, is also in many ways, I think a poor example. So to go back, you mentioned the Polgar story that's in the book. So let me let me talk about that because in some ways it, it would be interesting to people who've been watching um, Queen's Gambit. So they should go watch uh, the Polgar variant which is a great documentary about the Polgar sisters where these three sisters whose father Laszlo decided to train them in chess in a very technical manner um, from a young age in, in Hungary. and really, he didn't care about chess so much. He just wanted to show that any child with a head start and so-called deliberate practice, deliberate practice being like not playing, it's very focused, coached, focused on error correction, that any kid could become a genius in anything with a head start and deliberate practice. And in fact, two of his daughters went on to become grandmaster uh, players. And one of them went on to become the highest ranked uh, woman in the world, Judith Polgar. And So this, this showed up like the Tiger Woods story in a whole bunch of best-selling books saying like, this is the key. You just need this, this early start. And the fact is in chess, it it actually is um, really beneficial to get an early start because chess is based on repetitive patterns that you have to start recognizing almost like unconsciously. And if you haven't started studying those by age 12, the chance of a competitive player go reaching international master status, which is one down from grandmaster drops from about one in four to about one in 55. You have to start doing that. But that's also why it's so relatively so easy to automate, right? Because it's based on these recurring patterns that computers are much better at. And so it's actually a really bad model in many ways of most of the things like that we want to learn in the rest of the world or the Tiger Woods, like golf being the most famous example. Golf is almost a uniquely bad model of almost everything else that humans want to learn. So there's nothing wrong with those stories until we extrapolate them, which is mainly what we do with them, right? So golf and and chess, these are These are very far on the spectrum of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called kind learning environments, where kind learning environments are those that have repetitive rules that never change, patterns that repeat, goals and next steps are clear, feedback is quick and accurate, work next year will look like work last year. On the other end of the spectrum are what he called wicked learning environments, where next steps and goals may not be handed to you, rules may not be clear, they may change feedback may be delayed or inaccurate patterns. Don't just repeat work next year. Won't look like work last year. So like which one of these sounds like the world that most of us who aren't like pro golfers or chess players are living in, right? Some of both, some of both, but increasingly more of the, of the wicked. And so it's not that I have a problem with the Polger story and they are, by the way, I should just say they, in, in what little interaction I've had with the Polgar sisters, they seem like lovely, well-adjusted people. I don't think this is a story of like you know, kids being turned into monsters by an overbearing father. But the problem is when we extrapolate those lessons to these other domains where the lessons don't apply well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, fascinating. Um, I recommend everybody uh, get David's book and watch the Queen's Gambit too, (laughs) as well as the uh, the (laughs) book. I want to delve into each of the different parts. Um, of this, so you include so many fascinating um studies. So one of the ones that you include is compared to other scientists, Nobel laureates. So these are the people at the top of their profession, uh, normally in science and uh, medicine, and even economics. Are about are at least, and this is uh, um, quite extraordinary, um, 22 times more likely uh, to be an amateur dancer, magician or performer. So say more about how having range helps these high performers break old patterns, um, which then helps them succeed versus people who are uh, more specialized. Oh, and, and, and try to um, add in that Steve Jobs story as well, because I think that was also brilliant.
0: Okay, yeah, so as magicians, writers, musicians, all these other sorts of performers that, that Nobel laureate scientists were much more likely to have these sorts of hobbies compared to typical scientists. And not only that, but in other studies of, of engineers who made creative contributions um, compared to sort of engineers of similar technical skill, they tended to have aesthetic hobbies outside of work. And again, in the work of a professor named Abby Griffin who studies so-called serial innovators, these are people who make like repeated creative contributions to their organizations. She found they, they have, tend to have more hobbies than their peers. They read more and more widely. They have a, a need to learn outside their discipline. They have lots of people in their network who are outside of their own discipline all these sorts of things that are just, you know, they just have like wider, longer antennas for the world. And, and it seems like in the creative creativity research, a lot of researchers use different terms for what this is, some called like network of enterprise, they have sort of a lot of things that they're interested in. Um, But it seems to help avoid so called cognitive entrenchment, where you sort of get stuck. And, And again, there are different words for this, like, functional fixedness means people who, you know, they're only able to use a certain type of tool the same way over and over, and they forget it can be used in different ways. Or the Einstellung effect, once you've been accustomed to a certain type of solution for a problem, you get stuck in it, even when it doesn't work for new problems anymore. And so these are all forms of this cognitive entrenchment, where with experience, you become, you know, with, with sort of specialized experience, you, you become much more efficient in certain things but there's also a trade-off. You can think of it almost like an internet browser, right? It's like, if you go to the same sites all the time, you'll get cookies and you can go to those sites even faster, but you're sacrificing some sort of flexibility for for searching more broadly. And so in all this creativity research, it just showed up over and over and over that the people who made contributions tended to have like multiple streams of interest, often that didn't have anything to do with one another. Like they would have, they didn't seemingly didn't have one to do with one another. They would say, that it would give them insights into, into some of their work. Um, and so I think it's suggested that if we want to avoid sort of getting stuck in the same thought patterns, you want to have ideas coming from places that aren't just in your your direct line of sight every day. Otherwise, you increasingly know the same things that the people in your, you know, that are around you know, basically.
1: Mm. And that's where the Steve Jobs story comes in, isn't oh, it?
0: Oh, right. The Steve Jobs story, right. So he, he famously said, I mean, he Steve Jobs was sort of a, uh, obviously Apple has very important specialist, but he was kind of a, a master generalist um, in, in many ways. And he famously said that he, he audited a calligraphy class because uh, he was interested in aesthetics. And this gave him the idea to have different typefaces, right? And that led to all computers having all these different typefaces and a whole bunch of aesthetics that grew out of that. So it was just this auditing this class in calligraphy uh, that gave him an idea that really changed the aesthetics of, of personal computing. And he had he had a bunch of things like that where he would like pick up some uh like like he would he would go and, and browse stores, you know, for kitchen supplies or something and see, like, you know, I like I like the way this like blender fits in this spot or whatever. Maybe we can do so. He he was he sort of saw the world in the way I think like Saul Bellow saw when he like walked among people. He was like shopping for parts of people to put in his characters and books. And Steve Jobs was like, shopping for little aesthetic things when he went around the world. And so I think he was just like, I I think that was a common theme of what a lot of these, like these Nobel laureates would do is they really were just curious about the world. Like they were always, even in their personal time, they were like shopping for new ideas. And sometimes those would end up influencing their, their main work.
1: You illustrate um, the importance of range, uh, the title of your book um, using Team GB success at the 2012 Olympics. So tell us that story.
0: Yeah. So this is, I, I particularly use this because I, I was sort of responding to <laughs> a, a British writer who I like, by the way, um, who, who said that, uh, you know, blamed some of the problems of British governance on, on moving like different ministers into different positions and said, like, this makes no more sense than moving Tiger Woods to play hockey or something like that. And, you know, I think the extreme end of that argument would be, well, you should just have like a king, and they should just like stay there all the time, right? Because then they'll get the most experience. But never mind that. So, but it, I thought it was interesting that that team GB, um, as he made that sports analogy, I had some insight into some of what was going on to try to. I mean, Britain, quite frankly, had had a been gone from being a world sporting powerhouse to being very mediocre for for decades, and then has bounced back. In, in a big way. And a lot of that had to do with these programs that were set up to actually find late bloomers. So as one of the architects of this, this program, a woman named Chelsea War told me, she said, well, we know we have these fast risers, right? Like the kids who develop physically early or whatever it is, and people pay tons of attention to them, but they're like the easiest people to spot. And they're the minority. It's the slow bakers, these people that we don't pay attention to who could keep coming around and being like the most important members of our programs and we don't pay any attention to them. So part of the plan was to reform the pipelines so that these people who developed more slowly wouldn't get kicked out prematurely. And you could, you could they could keep themselves in even if they weren't the best early on. And a lot of those people go on to become the world champions and Olympians. In some cases, um, the UK set up even these, these so-called talent transfer uh, programs where you could take someone from one sport And just say, you know, you're not really going to make it in this one. You want to try some others. And occasionally things like that would produce Olympians or or gold medalists like Helen Glover, uh, you know, who who for a while was probably a a rower who was probably the most dominant athlete in the world. She got spotted in a talent search in Britain. She won, I think the first, her and her, her teammate won the first gold medal for the home team at the 2012 Olympics. She had not rowed as of the previous Olympics ever. Right. So these, this goes really against these 10,000 hours of, well, if you didn't start early, uh, you lost. And I think, um, you know, some countries that have realized that that is that's not the case have really capitalized on it in in diversifying their developmental pipeline to capture some of the, you know, late bloomers, which typically make up the greater portion of, of the people who go to the top.
1: And you write about a variety of paths to excellence, which all involve the sampling period, where you just described. You sort of sample sports and various things.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. So I must get you to tell us the story of Duke Ellington. Um... That was just a great example of a different pause. Yeah, and definitely I mean, so not starting early. <laughs> so.
0: Duke, of course, this came out of my personal interest, just because I think he's a you know jazz musician, um, a uh, through his art, an important social critic at the time, um, and. He, he creatively reinvented, him. like his most famous work, if you Google it is stuff from the thirties, this big band music, which honestly sounds a little bit like cheesy to my ear to the modern ear. But then if you look at his stuff in the sixties that people are less familiar with, it is, you would never know is the same musician. And it is amazing. Like go to YouTube, listen to Florette African um, with Duke Ellington. It's totally different music and it's, it's very modern and, and, and incredible. Um, but he actually had an offer of music lessons when he was a kid from this, I, I love the name of his, the teacher, he was offered Marietta Klink scales. Um, and he decided not to do it because he wasn't interested at the time. He was focused on baseball and painting and drawing. He actually was offered a, an art scholarship to college, but turned it down. And it was only, you know, it was about seven years after that, when he was a teenager where he heard ragtime and said, you know, now that, that I'm interested in and then he went to the piano himself and started trying started trying to copy and work things out and a theme for him became that he was he wanted to go and immerse himself and sort of try and experiment and learning by sort of being told do this over and over and over um, was not the thing for him and I think I think that is sort of in fact I mean he became at one time the preeminent creative composer in the United States and he was still using some of his own made up notation because he had never formally learned like real musical notation and people had to sort of like transcribe it for him and that that sort of is in line with a lot of research that suggests look if you're just looking to try to play classical music then this huge amount of repetition absolutely but if you're looking to create and compose then sometimes this this process that is much slower at the beginning where you sort of dive in and fail and aren't immersed and and it should be more like the way we learn language, right? Like you don't get taught grammar first. You 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 jump in and you try and you fail. And later, if ever, you learn the grammar, right? I, I mean, I'm a writer. I, I don't know. I know very little about grammar. It's kind of, well, I'm not embarrassed by it anymore because now, but like, you know, my in-laws sometimes still make fun of me because I don't know like formal rules of grammar. And I'm like, but it's okay. I mean, I'm living as a professional writer. So obviously it's not, holding me back in the same way that many of the great jazz musicians either learned to read music late or never learned to read music late. And so when they had to learn early on, it was this much initially slower, but more immersive creative experimental process that, that grew very organically into their creativity.
1: I love that uh, joke that you mentioned in the book. When a jazz mu- musician is asked, um, "Can you read music?" And the answer is, "Not enough to affect my playing."
0: Yeah, not enough to hurt my playing. <laughs> yeah, That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, David, it's absolutely fascinating. I want to kind of get into now some of the um, the concepts um, that all these stories illustrate. So um, I'm going to rattle through a couple of them and um, get you to elaborate. So reasoning by broad analogy. So we've touched on that already. That's sort of one of the takeaways. Another takeaway is, and this this is very interesting, um, why you have to set aside expertise sometimes, um, because there's a problem of deep and specialized expertise. So just kind of talk us through that.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the the problems with expertise sometimes, and again, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that we, we don't need it, but is the overuse of solutions that may have worked in certain situations or that people have gotten used to, even if they don't work anymore. So to give one sort of stunning example, like there are um, some interesting work by an economist recently in two, two Harvard-led studies that found that in, in the U.S., again, this is specific to the U.S., if you're checked into academic hospitals, so hospitals associated with, with universities, with certain cardiac conditions, like a heart attack.
1: Mm.
0: On the dates of a national cardiology convention, when the most esteemed specialists are away, you are less likely to die. And the conclusion the researchers made is that there's a lower rate of these very intensive procedures that specialists are very used to doing over and over, even though the evidence has shown either that they don't work in certain situations, you know, they're, they're dangerous or they're ineffective or both, and yet it, they keep doing it anyway. And initially this was thought maybe to be these sorts of phenomenon to be coupled to compensation, right? But then some institutions tried to decouple the number of times you do a procedure from compensation and it still stayed. So it's a deeper bias. And if you go look in specialist journals, you'll see even when overwhelming evidence contradicts some practice, they'll say, but I've seen it work, right? Which of course, the reason we have science is because you can't just tell it worked from having seen something work. And so you can get this effect where people do things like without thinking about it really, or in a situation that's changed or even in spite of evidence. And and one of the examples I use later in the book um, come from a psychologist named Carl Weick, who studied uh, organizations that that have to perform under high pressure and high reliability. And so they, they train really a lot, you know, over and over and over and over to create so-called muscle memory. And then the problem sort of becomes when, a situation changes and they do those same things anyway. So, something like eighty percent of commercial air traffic uh, accidents happen because a flight crew sticks to like the familiar procedure, even when to an outsider it's clear that the situation has changed. Or as White, like, one of his famous examples was in wilderness, uh, wilderness firefighters, where you know they'll either hike in or parachute into a fire, fire and try to dig a trench around it, and they're very elite you know highly trained professionals and they do a really good job except occasionally something unexpected happens like a fire jumps from one hill slope to another and starts chasing them uphill and what he what he found unusual in those cases is that when there would be a tragedy and there'd be loss of life and and bodies would be recovered they would often still have like 200 pounds of equipment on them only 50 feet away from where they could have run to safety and what he learned was that they would not, they were unwilling to drop their tools. So he used this phrase, drop their tools, um, which meant to dispense with your familiar procedures when the situation has changed. But they were so highly trained never to get rid of your tools. Your tools are part of your identity as a wilderness firefighter, they save your life. That even when they were being commanded to do so, drop your tools and run, they would not do so and they would die holding their tools. And eventually, this finding actually led to diversification of training in some of these areas where people are, have more improvisation built into their training. But he saw this issue of dropping your tools as sort of an allegory for a variety of industries where people continue doing something they're used to, even when the problem in front of them has changed.
1: Wow. And I want to uh, focus on one more aspect, um, which is grit. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: you write that grit has two parts, a work ethic and resilience, and a second part, which is knowing exactly what one wants. So tell us the beast story and, um, and why, um, how that story and grit predicts success better than comprehensive scores and all the kinds of things that we're used to looking at.
0: Yeah, so grit, like you said, again, just a quick refresher for everyone's probably heard the term but it's, it's a psychological construct based on a 12 question survey, half the points awarded for persistence of effort like perseverance and the other for so-called consistency of interests, you know, knowing what you want to do and and just that. And it became really famous with the work of Angela Duckworth, another person I really like, by the way, Um, when she did research at the U.S. Military Academy, um, so-called West Point, and the GRIT survey turned out to be a better predictor of who would survive BEAST, the the initial orientation that's very physically and like emotionally rigorous. Um, It was a better predictor than were traditional things like, tests of athleticism and and standardized tests and you know other traditional valuations and so I think that was a surprise and something that was very interesting um, it also turned out to have some predictive value for who would graduate as did those traditional measures and so that's that's an interesting thing to know the the part of it that I critiqued was um, if you so those West point, the point of West Point is not to make Survivors or graduates it's to make the future leaders of the organization. In this case, the U.S. Army. So they have a five-year active duty commitment after they graduate, fully funded. And since about the mid-1990s, after those five years, almost half of them quit, like on the day that they were allowed. So suddenly, these very gritty people are dropping like flies. And this and this this phenomenon started really in the mid-90s. So some high-ranking officers said, "Oh, we have a millennial grit problem." You know, like. I don't know, too much avocado toast, not enough mortgages or something. I don't know what the exact idea was, but they thought they had developed a grit problem overnight. And then a group of officers and researchers decided to study the problem and found they had not, in fact, developed a grit problem overnight. Surprise, surprise. They had developed a match quality problem. So they were, they had this traditional structure of you assign someone a career, they can express preferences, but you assign them a career track and they get up or out. And that worked quite well when the rest of our economy was like that with very little lateral mobility People had discrete periods of training followed by discrete period of work where they would do the same thing, but then enter the knowledge economy and information economy, and that goes out the window. And now we prize people who can engage in creative problem solving, knowledge creation, who are adaptable. And so these young people start realizing things about themselves in their late teens and early 20s and realize they have no agency over career matching in the army, so they would leave to do it outside. And first the army tried to throw money at them and that didn't work. The ones who were going to stay took the money. The ones who are going to leave left anyway, half billion dollars, taxpayer money down the drain. Then they started programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, get up or out, they pair these cadets with like a coach or like a mentor. They let them sample like five different career tracks, reflect on how each one fits them and, and learn about themselves as they go. 90% of the cadets who went through that talent-based branching program changed their career preference, 90% of them. And that improved retention where money hadn't. And so I think as one of the researchers in this area told me, when you get fit, it looks like grit. Meaning if you get people in work that fits their interests and abilities well, they will display characteristics of grit, even if they didn't before. And so it's not that I don't think grit is important, but I think the evidence suggests that there's an even higher return to to good match because people will then display those characteristics uh, of of grit anyway. Um, So that was sort of where I think grit is both important, but also some of our extrapolations about it have been, just like with the Tiger Woods story, have been ill-conceived. And by the way, Angela Duckworth, is she feels the same way. So I highly recommend Google Summer is for Sampling. It's, it's an edition of her newsletter that came out like a day before my book, and it talks a little bit about some of these, these misconceptions. So Google Summer is for Sampling, Angela Duckworth.
1: Lovely. Um, Okay, I'm going to squeeze in one more story for you to tell, because I think it's a great story to wrap up with, um, before I get you to just kind of sum up um, our takeaways. I want you to tell us the story of the first time CEO, um, who was also her first professional job at the age of 54, and she never went to college. So you write that uncommon career paths are actually common <laughs> and they're not that rare. Um, so it illustrates the importance of short-term planning. So tell us that story and about short-term planning.
0: Yeah, and she, was, she had one semester of junior college, <laughs> that's it. Um, so this is a woman named Frances Hesselbein um, who grew up in sort of an industrial town um, in Pennsylvania and basically her career strategy or lack thereof really was, as she said, do what's needed at the time. So she would volunteer in her community or her husband uh, had been a military photographer and came back and started a photo store. And she would just sort of, she was the literal Jack of all trades. Like if somebody had a weird request, it was like, Francis, just go figure it out. Like, I remember one story she told me was somebody, someone came in with their dog and said, I want you to take a photo of them, but I want it to look like a painting, you know, like an oil painting. It's like, all right, Francis, go like figure out how to do that. And so she was just this sort of jack of all trades and, and in her mid, uh, you know, and in, in she she started volunteering with the Girl Scouts eventually. And she didn't really want to, but someone from her neighborhood came around and said, look, we're gonna have to disband this group of girls unless someone like volunteers to be their leader. And so Francis does it and says, I'll do it for a few months. But then she just keeps doing it and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And she gets more involved in Girl Scouts. And at age 54, she takes her first professional job as sort of a regional director of the Girl Scouts, basically. And then she just starts every time, she never wants to, she always says no to the things. Every time somebody offers something, she always says no. Like shortly after that, which she had said no to, someone comes to her and says, look, we need you to lead the United Way fundraising campaign for Girl Scouts because it's, it's in disarray. And if you don't, then we're just gonna, you know, we're, it's just Girl Scouts are gonna lose the partnership. And France is like, fine. If first she says no, and then she says, well, if they're gonna lose the partnership, I'll do it. So she's the first woman to do this. And Johnstown, Pennsylvania, like leads the country in in giving that year. And so it's this huge success. And Eventually in her sixties, she goes on to become the CEO of the Girl Scouts. Again, something she says, no, when they ask her because the previous previous leaders of the Girl Scouts had been like a woman who started the US Coast Guard Reserve and a university dean, these people with incredible leadership credentials. France said one semester of junior college and was one of like 350 regional directors. And, but again, once again, she sort of decides to do it under a little bit of pressure. And cause the organization was tanking early seventies, society changing for girls and women a lot, Girl Scouts not changing very much. So it was in a tailspin, losing membership, losing volunteers. She comes in, throws out all the traditional stuff, right? Which was one of the big moves. Cause they could not, the people who are more steeped in it could not, like they had campsites that people weren't using but there was so much nostalgic value they wouldn't get rid of them. And she was like, we gotta, we gotta save the organization rip up the one handbook, make all these handbooks tailored to, um, to her target audiences, recreate the leadership team to look like the audience that she wants to serve. As she said, I want, if, a, if an indigenous girl on an ice floe in Alaska opens our book, I want her to see herself in a, uh, in a Girl Scouts manual. And again, this is in the seventies. And she saves the organization. She triples minority membership. She adds 130,000 volunteers. She turns the cookie business into a third of a billion dollars a year, weather's various crises changes it from an organization preparing girls for life in the home to one preparing them for careers in math and science. She gave me, oh, I guess I it's a podcast, you wouldn't be able to see it, but a badge that came out of her tenure is binary code for girls learning about computers. Um, And and she turned the whole thing uh, around. She changed the hierarchical structure to one she called circular management because she knew she didn't have enough specialty to get all the information she needed. She needed information flowing from more levels of the organization. And after that, she tried to retire And like two days after that, got a call from someone saying, We have an office for you. Come take it. You'll figure out what to do later, which is what she had always done in her life anyway. And she started a leadership institute that she still runs, works five days a week in Manhattan. And she just turned 105 earlier this month. So uh, who knows what's next for Francis? But it was, I just used it as this extreme emblematic. Symbol of this, this greater research that I profile called the dark horse project that talks about how people find work that fits them really well. And basically the pattern was they could have long-term goals, but if so, they didn't hold to them very tightly. What they really did was say, here's where I am right now. Here are the options in front of me. I'm going to do this one. And maybe a year from now I'll change. Cause I will have learned something about myself or my options will have changed. And they just keep on doing that over and over, like throughout their, their lifetime until they find better and better matches. And so she, she sort of occurred to me as an extreme version of that. And, and also, frankly, as someone whose story, I think, deserved a lot more attention. The, the famous management um, guru, Peter Drucker, at one point called her the, the greatest CEO in America. So she deserves more attention.
1: Great story to end with. Um, but David, before we wrap up, I want you to sum up. What are your tips um, to, uh, for, our, um, for those who are tuning in um, to become a generalist who triumphs?
0: Yeah. So first, don't worry about being behind because uh, development is so nonlinear, whether that's physical development or your your you know career development. Um, that we are our intuition is to see people at a space and time and assume that's a stable trajectory, and that's not that's just not the case. It's almost never the case. Um. So don't uh, don't feel behind. It doesn't help you. You don't even know where you're going. But I think an approach. Like I just mentioned, those dark horse, the dark horse project people, a lot of those people ended up with this incredibly broad skill set, but typically they didn't set out to say like I'm going to be a generalist. They set out in search of match quality for their work, and they would go somewhere and find, um, you know, and you, you only you only learn about yourself by doing stuff. My my favorite quote in range is from Herminia Ibarra, a London Business School professor, said we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. Like there's all this personality quiz industry that wants to convince you that you can just look inside yourself and know what to do. And in fact, you have to do stuff and then reflect on how it fits you, what you were good at and bad at. And so these people would take this approach of, of trying things to figure out about themselves and then pivoting in response to that those lessons and that lived experience. And by doing that, they would end up with this. By being curious about themselves and their options, they would end up with these broad skills. And so I would say you don't even have to set out to be a generalist. Be curious, diversify your sources of information, be open-minded, and and try to get the maximum amount of learning from each of your experiences about yourself. What surprised you? What interested you that you didn't expect? What were you good or bad at that you didn't expect? That was another surprise in the the Army's talent branching research. The cadets were often surprised by things that they weren't as good at as they thought they would be um, or interested in things they didn't think they would be interested in. And so make sure you, you make the most of those lessons and then don't ignore them. Like pivot in response to them. You know, it's, it's, I think we, everyone wants like a linear looking LinkedIn, you know, but we shouldn't reward people for forging ahead if they learn things that say they should pivot. And in fact, LinkedIn's own research on a half million members showed that the best predictor of who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked at. And yet you could argue that their product might auger against people feeling like they should do that. And so I think we should just don't, you know, don't be scared to try different things um, and and pivot in response to the things you're learning. Take every different opportunity to try something as um, an opportunity to learn about yourself and your options. I force myself to do it. I keep something I called a book of small experiments, where I force myself to investigate something new at least every other month. And so I think it'd be good if we all had systems for forcing ourselves to diversify our learning a, a little bit or try new things. Because once you get competent at something, most people will settle into that thing and keep doing it at a certain level forever. If you want to continually get better, you have to do different things. You can't lift the same weights the same number of times every day and expect to get better. You might not get worse, but you won't get better. So find methods to diversify. Don't feel behind and pivot in response to the pay attention to the lessons you're learning, reflect on them and pivot in response to them.
1: Great summary. Thank you so much. Um, David Epstein, I encourage everyone to pick up his book, *Range*: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's a lively read, um, and there's huge um, a number of just fascinating examples, including one we didn't have time to get to, but I absolutely loved, which was the story of Van Gogh, uh, the painter. And I think once you read the book, it'll inspire you to start thinking differently um, about your path forward or paths forward. So thanks very much again to David Epstein. And thank you all for tuning in. For more business podcasts, go to intelligencesquared.com. I'm Linda Yu.